This morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Follow along in, in your Bibles as I read aloud. It says this, Acts 15, 36, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to 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 the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We've been on a journey together as a church since last summer through the book of Acts. And it's taking some time, but I think you all understand it's taking some time because we've got some other things that we've been looking at in Scripture and well sprinkled in there in the midst of it. But just as a refresher, or maybe you've only been with us the last month or so, just as a refresher to you about Acts. What's Acts all about? Hopefully you recall as you think about this for a moment, oh yeah, Acts, okay, something that Jesus rose from the dead, He ascends to heaven, and then He sends out His apostles, the disciples, right? And He gives them uh, this mission statement uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which really I believe and many scholars believe, this, this is really the theme of, of the book of Acts. I'm not a scholar, by the way. I'm not trying to lump myself with them. But I think it's, I think it's there. Acts 1, 8. It says, Jesus tells his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that kind of provides the outline for the book of Acts. The, the disciples, they receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to come and dwell with them and empower them to do miraculous things. First thing being that they speak in languages that they've never learned so that people can hear the gospel in their native tongue, right? Uh, not only that, but then they start to proclaim the gospel and they see thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ and get baptized and form the very first church right there in Jerusalem. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, persecution that happens there from some of the religious leaders, they don't like this new movement. They start to persecute the first believers, and that kind of launches the believers out of Jerusalem, and they go to Samaria, and more believers come there. Uh, It's amazing to see. The gospel is proclaimed there, and people believe the good news, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized. And and it's amazing to see this church grow from this small group of people, and it becomes thousands upon thousands, and it spreads outward, 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 and that's what we see in Acts 1-8. And so our, our series now, we've, we've looked at several series, Acts 12 to 14, just to kind of get us caught up. It was called uh, uh, Danger Ahead. Paul and Barnabas, these, these two guys together, these missionaries working together, they go on their first missionary journey. They say, hey, you know what? The gospel needs to go beyond Jerusalem. It needs to go beyond Samaria. It needs to go beyond our hometown here of Antioch. It needs to go out. And so they go on this missionary journey, but they see that there's danger on the journey. As the gospel goes out, it always faces opposition. Even Paul himself says, he tells the, the believers as he's sharing the good news in Acts 14, he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, not only that, there was not just trouble outside, there was trouble inside because there were some that were saying, but wait a minute, you're going and you're speaking the good news, the gospel of Jesus to people who aren't just Jews. Are you telling me that this gospel goes to Gentiles or non-Jews as well? And so we looked at a series for a while in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, and we saw the implications of this message, that it's the gospel plus nothing else by the grace of our Lord Jesus that saves a person. 
Gentiles, they didn't have to take on the customs and the requirements of the law of Moses, of the Jews in order to be accepted. No, all people, Jew and Gentile, from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue are accepted into God's family by the grace of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. And there was a controversy that happened there, but praise be to God, the gospel remained true and central to what they believed. And so we see in verse 35, right before in Acts 15, right before we see our passage this morning, Paul and Barnabas, they're there in Antioch and teaching and preaching. What a great mission trip they had. Acts 1-8 is still happening, but it's not done yet. And so Paul and Barnabas, they get together and they say, all right, let's get on this journey, right? And everything's hunky-dory and they're ready to take a vacation and it's this trip together and everything's copacetic, right? It's frustrating to me. I was just talking about this with Dave Kelly this morning. So how many of you have ever been ready to get on, to go on this awesome vacation that you've been so excited about, and yet you get angry and you get into conflict with somebody that you're going on the trip with? That has never happened to Laura and me, right? We never, never do that. All the stress of getting everything all, all loose ends tied up and packing everything and, you know, all the travel arrangements. I mean, that's even more added stress. And you're like, I'm done with this. I'm not even ready to go on this trip. And there's conflict there, right? That's what we see right here in this passage this morning, conflict between Paul and Barnabas. I want you to think about this for a moment. Can Christians really get along and fulfill the purpose of Jesus if they disagree? Can Christians really get along, long-term meaning, can they get along with one another and fulfill the mission of Jesus together if they disagree? And if they can, what does that even look like? What does it look like to disagree and still be united around the mission? I'm not sure that we could look outside to the world for a lot of good examples of that, right? Our world is full of conflict. In fact, conflict uh, oftentimes becomes entertainment for us, right? Some of you probably have some of those guilty pleasures, right? You love to watch those shows where people are fighting and, and going on and on with each other, and you just see, wow, why, why am I entertained by this? this? This conflict, constant conflict, and we see it all over the place. And even when we form new groups around our agreements, it doesn't take long, small group leaders, for the storm of conflict to arise over our differences, big and small, right? We form, and then that storm comes, right? The storm of conflict. And it could be over big issues, like things like political issues and stuff. It could be small stuff. I don't like the soda that you chose to bring to the party. What in the world are you doing, right? But as we look at this, is God's kingdom expansion to the world, is it ultimately hindered by the conflict of his people? We got more and more people, it seems like, every single Sunday in, in, our, in our congregation. Praise be to God for that. The more people that we add, the more differences and preferences that we see here. We've got it. And sometimes I even change my preference. Can we get along in conflict and fulfill the mission of Jesus together? Well, I think we're going to see here that it's, the answer is kind of both yes and no. Both yes and no. It really depends on what, what is the source of our conflict and how do we handle the conflict. But this is our big idea that I would like for us to consider this morning from this text. The Lord can even use our conflicts for his kingdom. The Lord can even use our conflicts for his kingdom. Now, it was so awesome to have the crew team up here and praying for them. I feel like, man, this is just one of those moments where I just feel like, man, as a church, we're just crowded around together. We're united in this, and this is awesome. But what about those moments where we feel like, man, I just, I don't agree with you about this. 
and there's conflict. Does the mission of Jesus get derailed? Does his kingdom get diminished because of our conflict? I think we see from this text this morning that even our conflicts can be used by the Lord for his kingdom. We'll see this three ways. First of all, we see for Paul and Barnabas that the mission, the mission is their motivation. The mission is their motivation. They do agree upon that. But, but secondly, we'll see that disagreement arises from difference. Disagreement arises from their differences. And then thirdly, human weakness actually becomes kingdom strength. Human weakness becomes kingdom strength. Let's see the first one together. First of all, the mission is the motivation, right? Verse 36, Paul tells Barnabas, hey, let's go back and return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the, the word of the Lord. Now, when he says, let's go return and visit, this isn't just going and saying, hey, you know what? They made some really great coffee up there. Let's go up there and let's go enjoy their, their coffee. Or, you know, let's just go up and hang out with them. I heard there's a great sporting event, a great track uh, event up there at their Coliseum. Let's go check it out. No, this isn't just hanging out. They were going back to examine and observe and expect, inspect carefully what was going on in these churches with these believers. They had gone through all the region of Asia Minor and they were going from city to city and they would find a group of people that were open to the God of the Bible but necessarily hadn't heard the good news of Jesus and they taught the gospel. They taught the scriptures. They showed from scripture how Jesus is the true son of God and Messiah and that salvation is found in his name and in his name alone. Some rejected, some accepted, but those who accepted became followers of Jesus and they were the ones that formed the first churches there in those regions. And Paul and Barnabas, they say, we got to go back there. we got to see how they're doing. Are they remaining faithful to their commitment that they made to Jesus? Are they falling away? Are they buckling under the persecution? Friends, this is good leadership. This is good oversight. Paul and Barnabas recognize that it's, it's not just enough to win converts. No, but they want to make disciples. Disciples. That, that's what we're here for as a church. We're not here just to see people raise their hands, which is fine, you know, to respond to a gospel call. We're not just interested in just seeing people get baptized. By the way, if you want to get baptized, we want to help you do that. Come tell us about it. But we don't want to just just see you get baptized. We want to see you live a life following Jesus Christ. And I hope you want the same thing from me as well. We're here to make disciples, lifelong, passionate, wholehearted learners and followers of Jesus. We want to see people that are willing to go and proclaim his good news of salvation to those who need to hear it. We hope that that all of us are together in this mission, that we're faithfully obeying the commands of Jesus, that we're loving one another in strong community, and that we're sacrificially doing good deeds for those in need to shine the light of Jesus Christ in dark places. That's what it means to be a disciple. And Paul and Barnabas say, you know what? They believed in the good news and they formed that community, but we want to go back and make sure that they're taking the next step, the next step to follow Jesus faithfully. This is what leadership looks like. This is what the leadership here at Fairfax Bible Church cares about more than anything in this world. And God forbid that we ever stray from this mission. And that's to look over those that are under our care to say, are we as a church fulfilling the mission? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, uh, Peter says, another apostle says, I exhort the elders, which is the leaders of the church, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. The same kind of word here. I want you to go and look after and visit and think and consider and examine, not in a domineering way, but being examples to the flock. 
We're not here to come around and poke at you and just say, hey, you're not doing this right or that right. But we're saying, hey, are you following Jesus? We want to follow Jesus together. Are you following Jesus? But we want to be about the mission here, the mission. That's what Paul and Barnabas were motivated by. They were motivated by the mission. Before they could have any hopes of changing the world, the apostles and the early leaders of the church had to have the mission in their minds as their motivation. I hope you know what the mission statement of Fairfax Bible Church is. Think about it for a moment. Do I know what the mission statement is? (laughs) Do we know? Now, it's not because it's the most well-crafted, most beautiful, wonderful mission statement in all the world, but because we believe it, it reflects the mission of Christ. It's this, to glorify God, not us, to glorify God by making disciples, lifelong learners and followers of Jesus. Of who? Of all nations as we live in loving community. Is that a mission worth working for? Is that a mission worth, you know, agreeing about? Is that a mission that I hope motivates you? I hope it motivates me. I hope it motivates our leaders together, being motivated by that central mission. And here's the thing. As we're going to see in these next few verses, conflict's going to arise. But first, Paul and Barnabas had to agree about this. We're on the same page about the mission. That supersedes everything else. Our loyalty and devotion to Jesus trumps all other loyalties. He deserves our very best and foremost allegiance, and he's given us a mission to go and make disciples of all nations. So Paul and Barnabas, they're right on the same page, right out out the gate. Conflicts may arise, but before we get to the next step of conflict, we gotta ask ourselves, are we devoted to the mission? Are you devoted to the mission? Am I motivated by God's purposes or am I motivated by, by, by my own purposes or God's purposes? Do I need to have my agenda met or am I willing to bend to God's agenda? Oh, that we would be a people, that you would be a person. If you're married, that you would be a family and a couple uh, working together for the mission of Jesus. Now, that may look like a thousand different ways as it does in this room with different occupations and jobs and callings and things like that, but we're all together motivated by the mission. So they start off on the right foot, but secondly, we see this, that disagreement arises from difference. Disagreement arises from difference. We see it in verse 37. Barnabas says, well, if we're going to go on this next missionary journey, let's take John Mark with us. Well, who is this John Mark? John Mark is first mentioned in connection with his mother, who hosts a gathering of believers in her, in her home in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, right in Jerusalem. So uh, Mark is there. He, he lives, John Mark lives with his mom, and th- his, his mom's house kind of becomes a hub for the apostles and the early church uh, for a meeting place. They didn't have auditoriums like this. They didn't have big church, fancy church buildings. They would go and meet at the temple, but they weren't in charge of the temple. So what did they have? Well, they had homes. And so John Mark's home, uh, his mother's home, was a central place for meeting. Colossians later on, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, it identifies John Mark as actually Barnabas's cousin. So we see that Barnabas isn't just interesting to take along this, this uh, young man as a mentee, but he's also his cousin saying, hey, I want, he's family. I want him to come with him. I care deeply about him. John Mark, we know, accompanied Paul and Barnabas when they returned from Jerusalem to Antioch. They've been traveling with them. And then it says in Acts chapter 13 that John Mark served as their helper during their missionary journey to Cyprus. And so this was a very important person for, John, for, for Paul, but also especially for Barnabas. We also know that church tradition, it uh, identifies John Mark as the author of the second gospel of Matthew 
Mark. That's named after him, and, and church tradition identifies him as the author. In fact, in Mark 14, 51 to 52, if John Mark is the author, which I believe he is, there's this interesting little story in Mark chapter 14 as Jesus is being betrayed and arrested. It says in Mark 14, 51 to 52, uh, the author says, a young man followed him, unnamed young man, followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. It was late at night. It was kind of like his pajamas maybe, just a linen cloth. And it says that the, the people, the soldiers and the guards that came to arrest Jesus, they seized John Mark, but he, being John Mark, left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many of us believe this is John Mark. He's writing about himself and he doesn't name himself, but he's this young man that was there. Such an intimate piece to this story. It's likely him. Well, what do we care about that? Well, we care about it because John Mark was right there. He saw and heard Jesus himself. And so Barnabas knows, let's take this guy along. He's a witness to Jesus himself. He can be very valuable to us. You see, Barnabas had a very good goal and, and priority and desire in his heart. Barnabas, he saw the mission. He said, hey, Paul, we're called to make disciples. Let's take this young man with us so he can learn from us and we can multiply the mission of Jesus through him. He could be a future leader just like us through all his experiences. Is this something good that Barnabas has on his mind and heart? I think so. Absolutely. Let's take Barnabas, uh, excuse me, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. What a great idea. So that's one perspective. Then we see another perspective in verse 38. Paul speaks up and he says, whoa, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> no way. No way are we taking John Mark. Why? Well, because Paul would say John Mark showed that he wasn't ready for the pressures of missionary work when we went the first time. So now we get a little fuller piece of the story here. Back in Acts chapter 13, if you remember, it describes an odd encounter that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had when they're in Asia Minor. They had an odd encounter with a group who had a magician uh, there on Cyprus. Because this man uh, was a deceiver, uh, Paul pronounced that he would, uh, this magician would become blind. The mission was moving, but there was opposition. Opposition. Did this influence Mark? Did he say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to join you guys, but this is all a little bit too weird. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this. I'm just a young man. We got magicians coming out of the woodwork. We got Paul calling him and telling him he's going to become blind. He gets struck blind. And we, we could, some people like our, our, our message of the gospel. Other people don't. I'm not so sure about this. And so when they went, left Cyprus, and they're on their way to Asia Minor, John Mark leaves them. Acts 13, 13 says, Paul and his companions, companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, that being John Mark. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, Paul sees the mission here. He, he sees, okay, here's John Mark before us, but he goes, there's something bigger going on here, Barnabas, than just leading John Mark. We've got communities of disciples spread all over Asia Minor. We faced a lot of opposition on our first journey. In fact, Barnabas, don't you remember? I was nearly stoned to death because of our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Barnabas, we can't jeopardize the mission of Jesus by taking someone who isn't ready for the trials ahead. Does Paul have a good point? I think so. I think he's got a really good point. He's saying, I, we, can't, we can't sacrifice the good of the whole for one young man who could, who could show some cowardice and run in a moment of pressure. So we see here that Barnabas is motivated by the mission. And because of that, 
he wants to take John Mark. But we also see that Paul is motivated by the mission, and he sees that they have to minister to the whole, and he says, therefore, we probably shouldn't take John Mark. One of the most fascinating things I think about this passage is that Luke leaves us in doubt. Who was right? Who was right? Have you ever been there in a conflict? Or you've heard of a conflict, and you go, they've got a really good case to make. And then you hear the other side, oh, they've got a really good case to make. Who was right? Who was right? Luke doesn't tell us. Both of these men are motivated by the mission, and they see two sides of the same coin, and they say, John Mark has to go with us, Paul, Barnabas is saying. And Paul says, there's no way he's going to come with us. So what happens from this? Verse 39 says, there's a sharp, sharp disagreement that arises. Not a shark, but a sharp disagreement arises. This word, it has the idea of anger, exasperation. I mean, this disagreement for both Paul and Barnabas, these guys that work so closely together, they just find their, this conflict irritating. In fact, they might find one another irritating. The sharp dis- disagreement, it's provoking. It's stirring them up. They're in a sharp argument, a sharp difference of opinion. Now, I don't want to read too much into this. I don't know that there's yelling or, or anything like that. But we do know this, that they, they feel it deep down in their bones. And they're not willing to budge. There's a severe difference of opinion. They had formed this, this little band, this little group, but now the storm has come upon them and they feel the conflict. This isn't just polite deference. They aren't beating around the bush. Neither of them would budge because they each saw their perspective as the one that most clearly represented the values of the mission that they were motivated by. And so it comes to a head. And what happens? Does one concede to the other? No, in fact, they both just dig in their heels and say, I think the best thing for us then is to separate. We don't know who's right. Luke doesn't tell us, and I believe he tells us that on purpose or doesn't tell us on purpose. It's significant that so many centuries of study, the church is still not sure who was at fault of the conflict between Paul and Barnabas. You see, interpersonal conflicts can be complex. They can be difficult to unravel. How can I really identify who's in the right, who's in the wrong? And it's encouraging for us to see that God works through this conflict. That maybe you today, maybe you feel just entangled by a conflict and you feel like there's nothing good that can come from this. Friend, if we continue to submit our hearts to the mission of Jesus, he says, I can even use your conflict for my kingdom purpose. Praise be to God. I mean, Luke could have left this out of, 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 this, of this book of Acts. He could have covered up over these wards. He could have covered up over this sharp disagreement. But, but by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit guides Luke to put this down from pen to page so that we could see here in 2023 that the Lord can even use our conflicts for his kingdom. You see, that's what, that's what God wants. He wants unity even in the midst of conflict. Because here's the thing, if we don't want conflict, we got to give up the idea of unity and we have to adopt the idea of uniformity. Uniformity. See, if there's uniformity, if we all think the same, if we all dress the same, if we all speak the same, if we all have the same personalities, boy, it sure would get boring really fast if everybody was bald, right? Like me, right? 
uniformity. We all look, think, act, speak the exact same. That's uniformity. And when you get uniformity, there's no conflict. But I don't believe there's effectiveness, friends. But God has decided in the body of Christ to bring people from different backgrounds and with different perspectives and different personalities and and different giftings, all centered and motivated by this central mission to come together for Jesus. But at times, you know what's going to happen because we're still all a work in progress, like Barnabas and Paul, not perfect people, but people committed to the mission. They desired unity over uniformity. And guess what? There was difference and there was disagreement. The body of Christ needs diversity of views and opinions. Think about these differences that we have. Some of you may remember this. I don't know. uh, 2015, I remember one of the most dumb disagreements, but yet I got so passionate about it. Is that dress white and gold or is it blue and black? Anybody remember that? Remember that? And I just remember, like, I remember my kids, I'm like, look, look, look at this. You got to look at this on my phone. What color is that dress? And I, I was blown away that they said the wrong answer. I couldn't believe it. With their eyes, I said, your eyes, you know, we're related. We have the same blood flowing through our veins, right? And you remember all the heat and the debate, and it was funny at times, but after a while, I'm scratching my head. I'm going, how in the world are people seeing this dress a different color than I see it? I can't honestly remember which color I remember. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, do you remember that, that disagreement? But we see the same thing, but yet we see it from a different perspective, right? We see it from a different perspective. But yet, we can't allow things like the color of a dress to divide us. And I'm not talking about something just on social media. I'm talking about the preferences and the points of view that we feel and see even in our midst. The different points of view that you have in your small groups, the different points of view that you have in your close relationships, the different points of view that we have even here on a Sunday morning. Oh, I really like that song. I don't like that song at all. Oh, the, the message is too long. Oh, the message isn't long enough. Well, I know none of you are saying that, but, but some of us might, right? Right? I mean, we have these differences of opinion, and we could say, I see the, bl- the dress as black and blue, and you see it as white and gold. Who's right? Oh, and friends, we've, we've heard, maybe you've heard stories. My, my heart breaks, and it's such a besmirch on the, 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 the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ when churches do not remain united around the mission, and they split over the colors of dresses. Oh, God has called us to something so much greater than that. Not uniformity, friends. Not uniformity, but unity motivated by the mission of Jesus. Are you a person that is seeking unity even in the midst of differences and disagreements? Disagreement arose from uh, differences. But thirdly, and here's the awesome part. I just love this. Human weaknesses, conflicts, they become kingdom strengths. Human weakness became a kingdom strength. I I love this uh, great, uh, he's a commentator on the book of Acts, Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka. I love this. He says, the sovereignty of God as he works out his purposes, even through human weakness, is revealed as two teams now set out. It's almost as if God is saying, you know what, I'm going to see this, and I see your brokenness, Paul. I see your brokenness, Barnabas. You see two things from different points of view. You're motivated by my mission, and I'm going to even use your fallenness and your brokenness here to to feel that that conflict, and I'm going to use it for my kingdom. See, God is bigger than your conflict. He's so much bigger than our conflicts, and he could use even our conflicts for his kingdom. And so what does Barnabas do? He, He takes John Mark with him. What happens? Where, where do we see? Here's this, this young man, and I'm sure as, maybe he's even standing there, and he's watching Barnabas and Paul go back and forth, and I'm sure he could feel just all these feelings of weakness 
and sadness like a child almost watching two parents argue, right? And here's Barnabas standing up for John Mark, and there's Paul criticizing John Mark, right? And, and, and he's remembering, and he's like, oh, I wish that I had stayed. None of this would have happened. I wouldn't feel so bad about myself, but I wouldn't feel so bad about this conflict that I'm seeing between two people and two men that I love so much and that I look up to. John Mark was seen as weak in this story as the source of so much conflict. What happens to John Mark? How does God display his strength even in John Mark's weakness? Well, first of all, we know that Paul later on changes his mind about John Mark. He sees that John Mark ends up going out and establishing a new reputation, establishing a new pattern of following Jesus faithfully. In fact, in Colossians, he says three different times he mentions John Mark. Colossians 4.10 this is what Paul writes. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him. This, this, this guy now, you, you don't have to shove him away, but he's on mission now. And when he comes to you, I want you to welcome him. It gets even sweeter than that. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul writes then, he says, Get Mark, John Mark, and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me. I mean, this isn't just Paul taking John Mark along with him. But he says, now, Timothy, if, if Mark is there with you, I want you to bring him to me because now he's become very useful to me. This weakness has become a strength. Paul writes again in Philemon chapter, uh, verses 23 to 24, he writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, greetings to you. And he mentions several names, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Did you hear that? He names Mark, who was seen in Acts 15 as a weakness, and he says, he's on equal footing with me. He's a fellow worker. He's a co-laborer. The Lord can even turn our conflicts into things that can be used for his kingdom. He could turn our weaknesses into strengths. Friend, I want to let you know here today, I don't care what your past looks like, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can be useful for the kingdom of God. So many of you may feel like John Mark, oh, I'm on the shelf. I've got no place in this church. I've got no place in God's kingdom. God is not done with you yet. He can take your human weakness and it can become a kingdom strength. I've seen it in my life. There was a season of my life 20 years ago when I felt like I, I'm on the shelf, Lord. I've blown it bad. There's no way I could ever be useful to you. And the Lord has just shown that he could use my weaknesses as strengths, just like he did John Mark, and he could do the same thing for you. Not only Paul say that, but Peter said this about John Mark himself. 1 Peter 5.13, Peter writes, She who is at Babylon, who likewise is chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And it seems to me from church history and from this verse that Peter and Mark actually become very close friends as well, not just Paul and Barnabas. And then Mark, we know from history, it's written that Mark becomes extremely influential in the life of the early church. Mark is probably the writer of the second gospel, as I mentioned earlier. Papias, one of the early church authors and historians, he says, Mark, have, uh, Mark having become interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered of the sayings or deeds of Christ. See, what we get to enjoy now when we read the gospel of Mark is because Mark became very useful to the early church and very close to Peter. 
the father of church history, Eusebius, he also writes about Mark. And in fact, we, what we understand is Mark is said to have been the first man to set out for Egypt and preach there the gospel as well. And the first to establish churches in Alexandria and itself. There's no doubt then that Mark has had a significant place in the history of the early church. God took human weakness and it became a kingdom strength. Friend, if you've blown it, big ways, small ways, the end's not over. It's not over for you. Your human weakness can become a kingdom strength when you submit to Jesus. So that's the story of, of, of John Mark, of human weakness becoming a kingdom strength. Well, what about Paul and Silas? Well, Luke is actually going to follow them now. We're going to get to hear a lot about them in the weeks to come. I won't get into it all, but verse 41 says that they went out and they went to Syria and Cilicia to the places that they intended to go to. And what happens? They strengthen the churches. Two different paths that, were, that came from a sharp disagreement, human conflict, and yet what happens? The church is strengthened because of it. Two separate paths, two different places where kingdom growth can both happen separately for the kingdom of Jesus We'll see it next week in Acts 16, 4 through 5. Uh, as Paul and Silas went through these cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Human strength, human, excuse me, human weakness becomes a kingdom strength because the Lord can even use our conflicts for his kingdom. And we'll see also then that, that the gospel is going out beyond Syria and Cilicia, it's going out to Macedonia, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. And here's my favorite part about all of it, and you don't see it in this text. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul refers to Barnabas once again. Not just John Mark, but Barnabas. Written after this situation, Paul says, he, he equates Barnabas as one who's a co-laborer with him. These men that had this sharp disagreement, they become partners together again in ministry. Why? Why? Because the mission was their motivation. And because even though they showed a sharp disagreement and because they revealed human weaknesses and seeing two, two different points of view of the same thing, and we don't know who was right, we see that Jesus brings them together again because the Lord can even use our conflicts for his kingdom. We can be grateful that Luke didn't gloss over the crises in the early church and hide the weaknesses of his leaders. This is not an ideal church in Antioch. And guess what, friends? This is not an ideal church here at Fairfax Bible Church. We are, we are a church full of people with differences and people with weaknesses and people with failures, but we want to be motivated by the mission so that even if we have sharp disagreements, we can see that our conflicts can be used for kingdom purposes under the grace of our Lord Jesus. But this place that, that Luke is describing, it's not an ideal church with saints whose perfect lives leaves us, leave us panting with frustration over our failures and over our imperfections. It was a church with people just like you and just like me who nevertheless were available to God and were used to do great things for Him. Acts chapter 15, 36 to 41, as we saw this morning, this passage demonstrates the truth of 2 Corinthians 4, 7. This is true of all of us. We have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't have it in indestructible vessels, but no, we've got it in these broken vessels, these, these jars of clay. Why? Why does God do that? Why does he allow this treasure to dwell in, in broken people like you and me who have sharp disagreements and difference and conflicts? Why? 
It's to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The all-surpassing What's keeping us united here as a church? It's not because we have uniformity and we agree about all things. It's not because we have all the same political views or all the same preferences in music or preaching length or any of that. It's because we're united around Jesus Christ and we've got this precious treasure in jars of clay like you and like me. While this true, this, this passage, it doesn't give us an excuse to quarrel, friends. I want you to hear that. But it does give us comfort if we have disagreements that do not end in amicable resolutions. It gives us hope. For just as Paul and Barnabas got together after the heat of the conflict had died down, so can we. So can we. Therefore, we must be sure that during the heat of a conflict, we don't do anything or say anything that complicates a final resolution. All too often when we, when we get hurt and when we get disappointed, we start making public our, our statements that are difficult to live down. We start talking bad about those that we're in conflict with. We start speaking about them, gossiping about them. Perhaps we write strongly uh, written letters to others, or maybe we even post those things on social media. Oh, God forbid. But, but you see, friends, God is greater than those problems. We can always live with the hope of resolution. That hope enables us to look beyond the hurts of the day when we rejoice that one day our relationships will be restored and recovered. And we want to be that kind of people that says, Lord, we trust you, that you can even use our conflicts for your kingdom. Well, in closing, what does this mean for Monday? What does this mean for Monday? I, I want to present to you just a, a book that I've just found so incredibly helpful, and I'm just going to share briefly with you uh, what that's all about. It's called The Peacemaker. The Peacemaker, a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict by Ken Sandy. You just jot that down, write that down. I can share it with you later. I've got a copy in my office. And he describes here, what does it mean to be a peacemaker when in the midst of conflict? And I want you to think about this as, as we meditate and as we want to apply what we saw here today to our very hearts and lives and the conflicts that we experience. How am I doing in being a good manager and steward of the conflict that I find myself in? He gives us four G's, four G's of being a peacemaker. The first one is glorify God. Glorify God. Let that be your, your highest motivation. The question you want to ask yourself is, how can I please and honor God in the midst of this conflict, in the midst of this situation? Because, see, friends, if we're seeking to glorify ourselves and get our way, we're going to find that not only are we opposing the person we're in conflict with, but we're opposing God. He's a jealous God. He's the only one that deserves to be glorified. So the first question you've got to ask yourself in the midst of this conflict, am I glorifying God? Am I doing what I'm doing? Am I saying what I'm saying to please and honor him in this situation? Secondly, the second G, to be a peacemaker, is get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. You know, you're not just looking at the other person's point of view and how they're wrong, but no, you say, how can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? What have I said? What have I done that's caused this conflict in this situation? Get the log out of your own eye. Some of you may be going, what in the world log? What are you talking about? Jesus talked about that himself. He says, when you go and you want to correct another person, first make sure that the big plank is coming out of your own eye before you try and go get the little speck out of your friend's eye, right? And so that's where this comes from. Get the log out of your own eye before you go and check the speck in your brother's eye. How can I show Jesus work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? Thirdly, gently restore. 
gently restore. When you do need, when you got that log out now and you want to glorify God, you go to that person, go with gentleness and grace and humility. How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take the responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? How can I come and say, hey, I've said these things, I've done these things, but can I share with you some of the things that you've said and how you made me feel in this conflict? Do it with gentleness and do it with a heart that restores, not to, to distance. We want to have unity, right? And finally, fourthly, fourth G, go and be reconciled. We want to ask, how can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? That's what we want. Not uniformity, but unity. Because I want to glorify God. Because I'm getting the log out of my own eye. I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm coming with gentleness to restore. And then my goal is to be restored and reconciled and to forgive. Friends, this is the way that you and I can be peacemakers. So that the Lord can even use our conflicts for his kingdom. That's what we're called to do. Jesus' people are called to be peacemakers precisely because we know the great peacemaker. Amen? the one who made peace with us. There's no greater conflict in all the world than the conflict that sinful humans have with a holy God. And there's no greater tragedy of injustice in a conflict than what our peacemaker, Jesus Christ, our Lord, endured for us on the cross. Friend, this is the greatest example of God using our conflict for his kingdom the conflict that we had with Jesus, and he hangs his son on a cross to say, I want to make peace with you. Do you have peace with God today? You may be hearing all this and saying, I I would crave to have some peace in my conflicts. Well, friends, the first step is finding peace with God. That's available to you today through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That's what I want us to reflect on as we close now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. We're going to sing another song. And uh, I just want to ask, do you have peace with God? And if you do, are you going to be a peacemaker? In your conflicts, in your interactions, are you trusting that God can even use your conflict for His kingdom to glorify Him? to get the speck out of your own eye, to gently restore and to go and be reconciled. Why? Because you've met the peacemaker. We are called to be a peacemaking people because we know our great Savior who has come so that we can have peace in our own lives with the one that we were enemies with. Have you received that gift of peace with God? Have you received his reconciling offer to you today? I hope that you have. And if you haven't, we invite you Come talk to me after the service. We'll have some prayer counselors to your right. We want you to know before you leave here today, I'm no longer an enemy, but I have peace with God through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much that you are the God who sets the example for us. You are a peacemaking God through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, today my heart breaks as I see just all the tension and all the heartache that Paul and Barnabas felt in this sharp disagreement over John Mark. My heart breaks over seeing John Mark probably feel some kind of way about all, all the things that he had done and the failures and the weaknesses. But we thank you, Lord, that you take our human weaknesses, you take our conflicts, you take our failures, 
You take our differences and you say, I can even use your conflict, even your sharp disagreements for the purposes of my kingdom. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that today, Lord. Not that we would be a people of uniformity, that we would be a people of unity, that we would be peacemakers, that we would practice these four Gs, that we would, we would seek to glorify you, that we would get the log out of our own eyes and take responsibilities for our roles in the conflict, that we would gently seek to restore one another and that we would go and forgive one another as we've been forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, today for anybody that may be feeling the weight of all the conflicts in this world but has never made peace with God, the greatest conflict that they could ever experience, oh Lord, I pray that they would trust in Jesus the one who laid down his life and said, I'll go through all the conflict. I'll go through the greatest injustice so that we could have peace once again with one another. Oh Lord, move upon their hearts, move upon our hearts today to call upon the name of this great peacemaker so that we can experience the joy and peace of the gospel in our hearts. And we ask all this in the name of the peacemaker and all God's people said.